Why have priests if all Christians are priests? Carla Broussard is next. Hello and welcome to Focus, the Catholic Answers podcast for living, understanding, and defending your Catholic faith. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. And uh, a common challenge that's made to Catholics from our Protestant brothers and sisters, we don't need the priesthood. Peter tells us clearly we don't need the priesthood. In the first letter of St. Peter, he tells us that we're all priests now. This means that he's done away with the ministerial priesthood. That objection is one of the many objections that Carla Broussard tackles in his book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, How to Answer 50 Biblical Objections to Catholic Beliefs. So we invited Carlo in and asked him that. Why do we have a ministerial priesthood when it would appear in the first letter of St. Peter that Christ has done away with that ministerial priesthood? Here's Carlo. Carlo Roussard, uh, Apologist Extraordinaire, thank you for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. I uh, don't know about Extraordinaire, but Apologist, yes. Extraordinaire? <laughs> no, I think Apologist Extraordinaire. Well, we're working on it. Okay, good. Uh, uh, one of the th- you, you might have noticed this, but a lot of times if you go into a Protestant church, there's no priest there. There's a minister, a preacher, mm-hmm. but there ain't no priest there. Ain't no priest. And so this is one of the differences between... Uh, Catholics and Orthodox, and many, not all, but many in the Protestant tradition, right. is a, a, cha- a difference in of opinion about the, the importance of the priesthood or who exactly is the priest, I guess, would right. be one way to say it. So I'm going to give you the Protestant challenge, mm-hmm. and then we'll, we'll go through it and s- see if we can justify the Catholic position. Yeah, in order to be clear, <clears throat> you said, you know, we don't see any priests there, at least the type of priest that we as Catholics and oh, Orthodox that, right. would identify as a ministerial priest right. belonging to what the Church calls the hierarchical priesthood, something that is over and above yeah. the universal priesthood of baptized believers, a distinct class of men, class meaning an order, distinct men who are set apart for certain priestly mm-hmm. functions to minister to the people of God in the New Covenant. Uh, and the the reason that you made that clarification will become clear as we go on. There you go. It's not that there's no priest there. Uh, so here's the challenge. How can the Catholic Church teach? And this is in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1547. How can the Catholic Church teach that there is a ministerial priesthood when the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that we're all priests? Peter writes... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Yes, and that's the challenge. And I'm glad you cited the paragraph number in the catechism for our listeners to check out in paragraph 1547, because that's where the catechism articulates the church, the Catholic Church's understanding of the distinction between what it calls the ministerial or hierarchical priesthood and the common priesthood, which the challenge is appealing to, saying, hey... Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 9, you know, that we're all priests. And that's what we as Catholics would refer to the common priesthood of believers, of baptized members of Christ's mystical body. But some of our Protestant friends will deny the ministerial or hierarchical priesthood. Yeah. And the catechism, you know, goes on to articulate the distinction between the two that as the faithful, we all participate in the one priesthood of Christ, but each in our own proper way, right? We participate in this one priesthood of Christ. One is ordered to the other, 
So that's what the Catechism says, though they differ essentially. And then in talking about the ministerial priesthood, it says it's at the service of the common priesthood. It's directed at the unfolding of the baptismal grace of all Christians. The ministerial priesthood is a means by which Christ unceasingly builds up and leads his church. So it's important to sort of get a clear picture of what we're thinking of as Catholics concerning the hierarchical or ministerial priesthood and the common priesthood, and that sets up the target, right, at which our Protestant friends are directing this challenge, saying, hey, we we affirm the common priesthood, because that's what the Bible says. Right. And but we deny this ministerial hierarchical priesthood, which the Bible doesn't say, right? right? And in fact, the challenge asserts our Catholic belief that there is a ministerial or hierarchical priesthood contradicts. First Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 9, because we're all priests. The implication being, if we're all priests, then no ministerial nope. or hierarchical priesthood. Right, right. Um, and just, this really is a Reformation thing. I mean, I, I, not to get off on a separate track, but no one for most of the history of the church, and even today, most Christians do not share this uh, idea that uh, the, the general priesthood uh, of the whole people means that there's no ministerial priesthood. That's really just the Reformation where we see that, maybe a few other places. but That's right, because prior to the Reformation, a ministerial priesthood within the people of God was essential to the people of God, right? Yeah. That, was, that was common par for the course, right? All throughout Christian history up until the Reformation where you have a denial. Now, you do have a few squabbles here sure. and there of right. certain groups dissenting or rejecting or claiming for themselves the ministerial priestly ministry. We even see a hint of this in the New Testament. Perhaps we can get to this uh, later in our discussion. You know, I haven't, I didn't plan on us chatting about it, but maybe we can bring it up. Right. uh, Where Jude, uh, where Jude talks about those who are falling into the rebellion of Korah, right? Uh Uh, Appealing to, I think it's Numbers chapter 16, where you read about that event of some who were trying to usurp the priestly authority of Moses and Aaron. Yeah. And there was some severe consequences, like the earth opening up and swallowing them. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And Moses like took the golden censers that they were using as a test, right? Because Moses said, "Hey, you want to challenge our authority? Let's get it all, baby." Yeah. And so they had a, a a contest of legitimate priestly authority, and like God accepted the offering of Moses and Aaron, and like. And, and and swallowed up those who were following this gentleman named Korah and rebelling against the priestly ministry of Moses and Aaron. And Moses used the gold of the golden in the golden vessels to uh, construct this uh, golden altar as a sign that the priestly ministry of Moses and Aaron is ordained by God. And you don't balk against it. You don't try to reject it. You don't try to usurp it. Right. And we're told in the New Testament that there were some in the first century Christian community who were falling into the rebellion of Korah. Well, what does that imply? That there were New Testament ministerial priests. Right. So now I'm kind of getting off a sure, track sure. here, but this is posit- This would be positive evidence for the New Testament ministerial priesthood. And so what we want to do here is try to answer this challenge from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Yeah. Okay? But in... In responding to the challenge, we actually have, or we can construct a positive argument for the ministerial priesthood. So, Okay, so let's do that. Let's okay. construct the positive argument. So here's the thing. 
First of all, let's take a step back. Recall how I mentioned earlier the implication was that if everyone is universal priests, then the, the consequence of that would be no ministerial priesthood. Well, that's just a non sequitur. In other words, you know, that there is no ministerial priesthood simply doesn't follow from that we're all universal priests, right? I mean, because you can have both and. Oh. And as we're going to see in a few moments, you could have both and in the Old There was both and in the Old Testament. Common priesthood? ministerial priesthood. So just because there's a common priesthood, that doesn't mean there's no ministerial priesthood. You would have to provide some other justification for that. Right. Okay? So so this p- passage that the objection is made with is not enough correct. on its own to do away with that is correct. ministerial because priesthood. Hypothetically, right. you could have both. Now, Well, actually, in fact, you could have both. That's right. <laughs> not just hypothetically. <laughs> well, well we're, we would have to b- shoulder the burden of proof in order to yeah. show that there is both, but our Protestant friend would also have to shoulder the burden of proof, proof to support his position that there is no ministerial priesthood. Now, he thinks this passage does that, right. but it simply doesn't. And oh, okay. here's, we can push it even further, because what Peter is doing here is he's quoting Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, which is used in reference to the Israelites. Israel, the people of Israel is referred to as a kingdom of priests. Yeah. and a holy nation. So Peter is directly quoting that and applying it to the Christian church, the implication being that the Christian church is the new Israel of God, Amen. as St. Paul writes in Galatians 6.16, if my memory serves me correctly here. So that Peter is making this direct connection between the new Israel, the Christian church, and the old Israel of God, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, that at least would allow for the possibility of there being both a common priesthood and a ministerial priesthood, just like in the old Israel, which Peter is making a direct parallel to, there was a common priesthood and a ministerial priesthood. So that's our first step forward, but we can push it even further and say, well, wait a minute, that Peter is making this parallel. We can argue that in Peter's mind, he's seeing the Christian church as the new Israel, and because they had the threefold rank of priestly ministry in the old Israel— High priest, which was Aaron and his sons, excuse me, Aaron, and his sons, which ministered with him, that would be the middle rank of priestly ministry, and then you had the common priesthood of all the believers, all the Israelites. Right. And Peter's making a direct parallel between the old Israel, which included that threefold priestly rank, and the Christian church, making a direct connection with the bottom rank of the universal priesthood. Now, in the New Testament, we know that there's a high priest in the new Israel, that's Jesus Christ, matching up with Aaron in the old Israel. Hebrews 3.1 tells us that Jesus is our high priest. So if we have a match between the bottom rank, common priesthood, the top rank, high priesthood, Aaron and Jesus, well, in the old Israel, there was a middle rank. And so it's reasonable to conclude that there would be a middle rank of priestly ministry in the new Israel of God. And that would be those ministers who serve with Jesus in and through Jesus as the high priest, as ministerial priests. So rather than 1 Peter 2, 5, and 9 being a challenge to the Catholic belief, it actually can be used as biblical support for the Catholic belief that there is a distinction between the common priesthood, all baptized believers, all believers in Jesus— And the ministerial or hierarchical priesthood, which is a priesthood that participates in 
the high priesthood of Jesus Christ in a way that our priestly ministry, our priesthood as baptized believers does not. All right, so uh, fair enough on Peter, but one might want a higher authority. So let's let, to ask about Jesus. What did... What, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, he, and he is a higher authority than Peter. Well, this, this is a legitimate question because our argument so far was one of plausibility, right? right? So given the parallel that Peter makes with the old Israel and seeing the correspondence between the various ranks of priestly ministry, making a reasonable inference that there would be a middle rank as well, namely a ministerial priesthood to match up with Aaron's sons who ministered in the Old Covenant, okay? Yes. But I think we can provide further evidence for the New Testament ministerial priesthood. So we could start with John chapter 20, verse 23, where Jesus tells the apostles on the night of the resurrection, whatever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whatever sins you retain, they are retained. Now, I argue that this is a priestly indicator, right? That Jesus is giving them the authority to forgive or not to forgive, forgive or retain, indicates that he's constituting them as his new, new covenant ministerial priest. How so? Because if you read it against the Old Testament backdrop, what you discover in the Old Testament is that God did not intend to reconcile his people back to himself apart from his ordained priestly ministers, but in and through them, in an essentially different way than what we as Catholics claim in the sacrament of penance with the New Testament priestly ministers now. But nevertheless, God did associate his ordained priestly ministers with reconciling people back to God involving the forgiveness of sins. So think of like, for example, Leviticus 5, 5 through 6. If you were guilty of sin, we, we read about the instructions that Moses gives the Israelites to take this, a sacrificial victim and to go and make a sacrifice of atonement, right? To make a guilt offering. And confessing of sins was involved. The Israelites had to acknowledge their sins and they would take their sacrificial victim to the priest. The priest would offer the victim to make atonement for the sins of the Israelites. So notice the paradigm there, how God in his infinite wisdom has set it up in the old covenant in such a way that he's going to reconcile his people back to himself, not apart from his ordained priestly ministers, but in and through and with their ministry. And so now, hypothetically, Jesus could totally change the paradigm and only deal with us on an individual level and not involve any ministers whatsoever. God could do that. But the question is, what did God do given the New Testament revelation? And yeah. so this is where we come to John 20, 23, and he says, whatever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. Whatever sins you retain, they're retained. In light of that Old Testament backdrop of the priestly ministry of reconciling people back to God, it's, it becomes clear that what Jesus is that authority Jesus is giving the apostles is, is an indication that they are his new covenant ministerial priests. So that's one piece of evidence. Okay, so the, the, there are other priestly functions, however, and, and of course, making sacrifice is one of them. That's so, right. So uh, do we have evidence that he commissioned them to make sacrifice? Yes, the, the, the answer is yes, and where that's at is at the Last Supper. So we've talked about this before quite a bit, and, you know, other podcasts on the Eucharist and on Catholic Answers Live. But at the Last Supper, when Jesus tells the apostles to do this in remembrance of me, the Greek word for do there, or the Greek verb there for do is to, means to 
can have the meaning of to offer. Mm -hmm. The Greek is poeo. And in Exodus chapter 29, verse 38, for example, at least in the Septuagint, where poeo is used, as well as Leviticus 9, 7 and Psalms 66, 15, poeo is used in the sense of offering sacrifice. So that Greek word, that Greek verb has sacrificial overtones, or you might say it's it's charged with sacrificial meaning. So in, the, in as much as Jesus commands them to poeo, right, to do this in remembrance of me, do what? Do what he just did. Take bread and wine, say, this is my body, this is my blood. So he's commanding them to offer the Last Supper as sacrifice. And in as much as it belongs to the office or the role of a priest to offer sacrifice, according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3, mm -hmm. and Jesus is commanding the apostles to offer this Last Supper meal as a sacrifice, which he only tells them to offer, and it's not something that every individual Christian is to do. This is a distinct role that they are to play or a distinct duty that they are to perform indicates that he is constituting them as priests mm -hmm. at the Last Supper. So we have both of these priestly duties, the forgiveness of sins, which is priestly in nature, and the offering of the Last Supper as sacrifice, which is priestly in nature, both of which indicate that Christ constitutes his apostles as his new covenant ministerial priests. And what's interesting, one thing I forgot to note, Sai, is that concerning the commission to forgive sins, the early Christians understood that power, that duty to forgive sins, that authority, as belonging to the ministerial priesthood. Oh, they did? Yeah. So, for example, Hippolytus in the early third century, about AD 215, we have Hippolytus in his apostolic tradition, an early church father here, who's giving us the prayers that a bishop is to pray when ordaining presbyters, when ordaining deacons, and he even articulates a prayer that the early church was using and was to use when ordaining a man to be a new bishop. And Hippolytus says, you shall pray this. And in the prayer, it talks about, it's a request or a command of God, like, God, please, requesting of God, pour forth now that power which comes from you, your royal spirit, which you gave you to your son, Jesus Christ, which he bestowed upon his holy apostles. Okay, so the same spirit that Jesus bestows upon the apostles, this ordination prayer is requesting for that spirit to be applied and, and, and poured out upon the man being ordained a bishop. And a part of that power is the power to feed your holy flock and to serve without blame as your high priest. Yeah. So there is Hippolytus in this ordination prayer affirming that the bishop is seen as a high priest, to be functioning in the high priestly ministry of Jesus in the full capacity, right? We're in a limited way as, as uh, baptized members, but the bishop does in a full way. And watch this. And by the spirit of the high priesthood to have the authority to forgive sins in accord with your command, referring to John twenty wow. twenty three. So there Hippolytus recognizes the forgiveness of sins as being essential to the priestly ministry 
of the bishop, and that's an early third or third century. So right, that's it's phenomenal very, evidence. Very well yeah. developed, yeah, because this is a prayer that they're already praying when he writes it down. So that's who, right. Who knows how ancient? Um, okay, so uh, anything else from the New Testament? Because we, we have uh, c- clear uh, that if Peter is referring to the book of Exodus when he says, you know, when he describes. Uh, Christians as a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He's uh, referring to the 19th chapter of Exodus. That at least sets the stage. Well, he could be meaning that in the sense of, uh, the, of uh, therefore, the, the priestly offices of the church are like those of Israel, which would give support. Then, right. then Jesus giving them the power for, to forgive sins, commanding them to make sacrifice mm-hmm. or to offer the sacrifice. Anything else that suggests a ministerial priesthood in the New Testament? Yeah, as far as a recognition, so we got two pieces of evidence for a recognition of the New Testament ministerial priesthood. So, so far, uh, the, the passages concerning Jesus would be the institution of the New Testament ministerial priesthood. 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9 would be evidence for a recognition by the New Testament church. But we also have St. Paul seems to recognize his apostolic ministry as priestly in nature as well. And a classic text that's been appealed to throughout the tradition is Romans chapter 15, verses 15 through 16. And Paul says, But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting is the Greek word that's used for priestly service is yerargeo, and which is the verb form of the Greek word yerus. Yerus is the Greek word that's used for priests within the Greek version of the Old Testament, namely the Septuagint. That's the Greek word for priests within the Jewish theological milieu. Right? Okay. And in the vocab and in the language. And Paul is using that Greek word in reference to his apostolic ministry and service of the gospel, thus indicating that he understands himself to be a priest. Yeah. And, and more specifically, with regard to the Old Testament, that Greek word, yerus, is used in reference to Aaron and his sons, for example, in Exodus okay. chapter 8. So Paul's identifying himself with that. Paul's identifying himself, at least it seems to be. He's, he seems to be implying that he's recognizing his ministry as a priestly ministry. Now, of course, I mentioned at the outset of our conversation uh, that reference to Jude, it's Jude 11. That's where he talks about the rebellion of Korah. So that would oh. be yet further evidence of this early recognition within the first century church of a New Testament ministerial priesthood when he talks about, Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion involved rebelling against the ministerial priesthood of Moses and Aaron. Jude says there's a rebellion of Korah in the first century church. Yeah. And the only implication there is that there must be a rebellion against a hierarchical ministerial priesthood, which would imply there exists a hierarchical, hierarchical ministerial priesthood of the New Testament. So if Paul sees his work as a priestly work, what does that tell us then? That about the, so that Paul sees his work as priestly. Right. And so... The implication being that the apostolic ministry and the, and the functions that the apostles performed were priestly in nature. They understood themselves as apostles, as having the episcopate, right? Right. To be priests. And to be a priestly office, I should say. Yeah. Okay. And so and and then we we just 
the, the, you've focused on, except for the one Hippolytus, Hippolytus right. you focused on biblical sources. Right. And But we find a great deal of support of this outside the Bible very, very quickly. I mean, I suppose there's Timothy being a bishop and, yeah, and all that. But that's right. That's right. And what, what we discover is in the writings of Ignatius of Antioch, it's very clear right after the time of John, A.D. 107 to 110, where you have a distinct threefold rank of bishop, presbyter, and deacon, right? Yeah. And you, you find that threefold rank in Irenaeus, you, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, the threefold rank is there, and that threefold rank involving distinct duties that each of these ranking officials within the New Testament church, within the Christian church, are to perform. And as we mentioned already with Hippolytus' ordination prayer, it's priestly in nature. You know, these ranking officials do priestly things like presiding over the Eucharistic celebration and offering the Eucharist as sacrifice. Even, check this out, even Clement of Rome, this thought had just occurred to me. Clement of Rome in AD 90, that's sort of a, a common date that's ascribed to his letter to the Corinthians. Corinthians, to the Corinth church, church in Corinth there. And it's about chapters 42 to 44. He talks about how he gives the instruction to not despise the gifts offered by the bishop's office. Yeah. That's the language he uses, the gifts that are offered by the bishop's office. And he says, it's no light thing to despise it or to reject it. And many scholars acknowledge that what he's referring to there is the offering of the Eucharistic celebration, okay? Even yes. J.N.D. J. Kelly acknowledges that, Anglican uh, Protestant scholar. And what's interesting is that this is right in the context of drawing a parallel between the apostles and their successors, namely bishops, yeah. and Aaron and his sons. Oh, Clement, isn't that something? Clement oh. himself draws this parallel very clearly. And the implication being that Clement, in the first century, while John the Apostle is still alive, recognizing the apostles and their successors, namely the bishops, which he identifies, he says, yeah, the apostles knew that they would need to ordain other men, and these men are bishops, and they've succeeded the apostles. He sees them in light of the priestly ministry of Aaron and his sons, implying that Clement understands the apostles and their successors, the bishops, to be priests. And guess what? As priests... They have gifts to offer, the gifts of the bishop's office, which if you reject and despise, it's no light thing, he says. Yeah. And according to scholarship, he's referring to the Eucharistic celebration there. So even in the early church, they acknowledged that there was a New Testament ministerial priesthood. I realize that this is uh, difficult for some, but uh, for those who have actually experienced the forgiveness of Christ at the hands of a priest, it's really good news. Amen to that. Thanks, Carla. Thank you, Sai. To me, the most convincing argument for the priesthood is that uh, Aaronic priesthood that uh, Carlo talked about, that which we have in the New Testament is prefigured in the Old Testament. And the current situation of priesthood is prefigured in the Old Testament, as so many other things are. This and other uh, challenges are addressed in Carlo's book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, How to Answer 50 Biblical Objections to Catholic Beliefs. You can get that over at shop.catholic.com or wherever on the internet. Don't forget, we love to get your emails. Focus at Catholic.com is our email address, focus at Catholic.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. 
If you're listening, wherever you get your podcast, if you can give us that five-star review and maybe write a few words to encourage others to listen, the podcast is growing and we're very grateful to you for helping us to do that. We also continue to need your financial support. If you can do that, go to givecatholic.com, give in any amount at givecatholic.com. Well, not more than a billion dollars. We have set an upward limit of $1 billion. Uh, and uh, when you give, just write a little note. This is for Catholic Answers Focus. That way it'll get to us. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. Always great to be with you. See you next time, God willing, right here on Catholic Answers Focus. Mm-hmm.